millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to this new episode of The Back Half, the New Statesman's Culture Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Kate. And Kate, you are sitting shivering Mm. uh, in Mm. your executive chair down here in the podcast room. Because of extreme aircon. And it reminded me that Niall Rogers claims to be able to hear music in the air conditioners. And then that made me think that there's an amazing song by Warren Zevon, which actually has an air conditioner that appears in the end, but it's just in in the form of a chorus of all his voices singing an amazing tune. Amazing. But I can't hear any music in this one. What music does Nile Rogers hear in? Uh, he can hear like um, a chord change. So if there's a thing, basically he claims to be plagued doesn't by he music. Just, doesn't he just hear his own music? In that <laughs> he, just hears his own, he does. He walks around singing his own music. And then when he's in a hotel room, he's like, hey man, I can't concentrate because I can hear the music. <laughs> so it might all be bollocks, but I quite like the idea. Music-wise, what are we going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about the human cyborg that is Janelle Monet, who's got a new album out next week, uh, first in five years. It's called Dirty Computer. We're also going to be discussing the new um, Amazon Hulu series. Well, actually, it's just finished, but it's all available to watch. The Looming Tower, which is about uh, Al-Qaeda and the road to 9-11. We're going to have another non-aversary, the non-specific cultural event. And... As a little bonus, I'm going to um, give you a taste of a conversation I had with uh, the novelist Jim Crace uh, about his latest novel, The Melody, and about the liberal instinct of fiction. And it's more exciting than that sounds, I promise. <laughs> so Kate, Janelle Monet is about to release her first album in what you just said, five, five years, is it? Yeah. So she claims to have had the uh, concept for this album before she even began the Arc Android, which is, of course, the double, the incredible double concept album that came out sort of roughly 10 years ago, which uh, is the one that had tightrope on it, which yeah. is um, the thing that made her famous. And and I still feel physically sick when I watch the video of tightrope <laughs> because it excites me so much. So Janelle has this thing about... Um, like a real marriage of the visual and the audio. So she calls these videos that she makes her emotion pictures. Mm. Um, and I think Tightrope is still a good example of how closely the visuals are tied to the sound. Because if you listen to Tightrope, it doesn't have the same effect. You have to watch this bizarre 
um, film that's made in a deserted mental home Called with a palace of dogs, palace of dogs with members of Outcast in it, and her incredible sort of black and white tuxedo working aesthetic, um, and her classy brass and the Metropolis horn section, and very very strange thing, um, and it still has a kind of yeah an extremely exciting effect on me when I watch it. So. Well, maybe we can come back to Arc Android, which is which is incredible. Um, she's just she's released. I think a string of three singles so far this year and uh, make me feel Django Jane and Pink, which fits in with that emotion picture thing. And it's got a very thoroughly thought out conceptual video, um, <laughs> which, well, do you want to actually, uh, do you know what? I want to read out the Wikipedia description of the video, which is, which is sometimes worth doing. The plot finds Monet and Thompson. That's uh, Tessa Thompson, the, uh, the actor who is in um, Black Panther and, um, Annihilation and uh, appears in lots of uh, Janelle stuff. The plot finds Monet and Thompson, along with a group of other women, dancing in a desert, having a slumber party, and sitting out by a pool while express while expressing appreciation for the vagina. <laughs> Is that all it says? Yeah. So it doesn't mention the fact that they're wearing massive vagina chaps, the incredible trousers that kind of go around in an arc, um, which are bright pink of like varying types of pink. Um, yeah, it's very, very direct, very simple concept. I think this is something that's happening with Janelle. She, Janelle is still a, um, a sort of a work in progress. It's kind mm. of amazing watching it evolve. It's very complicated. No one quite knows what it is yet. But there is certainly, like sonically, there is a simplifying of her output. And you can hear in the three songs that have been released so far, it's it's clean, uh, very catchy electro pop compared to this sort of, you know, extremely Baroque stuff that she was coming out with a decade ago. And I think that's equally true of her new single, just released, I Like That. Sometimes I want to roll or stay at home Walk in contradiction, get some factual and fiction A little crazy, little sexy, little cool Little rough around the edges, but I keep it smooth I'm always left to center and it's right where I belong I'm the random mind and don't you hear in major songs And I like that So Kate, you were just saying how her sounds evolved a bit and, and kind of she, she stripped it down a little bit. What's interesting is that doesn't mean that, that she's sort of narrowed the range. It's still like a kind of amazingly broad range of stuff. So so just in these four songs we've had, Make Me Feel, which is a complete um, Prince number. I mean, it's like it seems to directly riff on Kiss. Yeah. She was working with Prince on this album before, before he died. Before he died, or yeah. as she puts it, passed to another frequency. <laughs> This is how she speaks. Yeah, she speaks yeah. in like retro Cosmic. futuristic yeah. psycho babble. Yeah. You can't get any sense out of Janelle as, as brilliant as she is. <laughs> and then we've had um, Django Jane, um, which is a sort of, uh, is a rap, uh, a rap track, very uh, self-assertive. Remember when they used to say, I look too mannish, stuff like that. And the video is, is a kind of bunch of uh, girls following her black leather clad posse yeah and i've and my favorite line i've got no space left on my damn bandwagon <laughs> which also i think is a bit of a stretch because in a way she doesn't have a bandwagon she is kind of unique and there aren't really people copying janelle but you know it's it's aping that kind of like tough rap you know yeah. ego rap yeah. which she she can do but it doesn't necessarily suit her as well as the sort of more political stuff that she does she seems to always be doing it with a with a raised eyebrow which, yeah. I, which I still quite enjoy uh, the, the other great line in Django Jane is hit the pause button let the vagina have a monologue <laughs> um, 
Then you've got Pink, which is this kind of, again, like quite minimalist electro pop. Grimes is on it. Then a weird sort of poppy, almost hands in the air chorus. And then I like that, which we just heard a, a clip from, um, which is that kind of R&B skippity hi-hat stuff um, with, a, with that lovely uh, spoken word section where she uh, remembers uh, a child in her class in like, I don't know what grade it was in math class, telling her that she was weird and that she and rating her a six. <laughs> when she cut her perm off. Yeah. <laughs> there was when she when she came out, there was a feeling of um a extremely elaborate, brilliant, sort of almost student art project to it. It was the Wonderland Art Society was her kind of coterie of black and white clad men and women. And they functioned out of a house in Atlanta. It was basically just a house. But it was um, it was sold as this very mysterious kind of factory that was creating this music and this aesthetic and everything. And when you would go and see her in those days, like about 10 years ago or something, it was weird watching her because it was completely brilliant, but it was also slightly shambolic. So she had this phase where she would have um, an easel on stage. And while um, the music was playing, she would draw a naked lady. Like she was like sketching a lady and yeah. she, and then she would like tear the lady off and give it to a member of the audience. And there was that, just those, that beautiful sense of when very, very bright driven people have their first project, they throw everything in it and it's hard to, to know exactly what's going on. And there is kind of a, a sense of almost real time emergence of someone who's finding mm. what they can do best and slimming things down. And also of course she's, she's, um, in a very good position because she was doing this sort of Malcolm X type protest music, but quite subtly protesting music before yeah. Black Lives Matter was a big mm. thing. And now Black Lives Matter is big. Beyonce's all over it. So mm. she's kind of, she's got on that bandwagon herself. And so now she's getting the international superstar press interest that maybe mm. she wasn't getting at the start. Yeah. I, I watched a video, which I, I hadn't seen at the time from 2015, I think, which was um, after a big Black Lives Matter protest, uh, she did a track called "Hell You Torn Bout." Did you ever see that? No. It's like um, it's a pro it's a straight down the line protest song, and it's just a chant basically where using the names of of some of the people killed, you know, in by by white American police over the last over the last couple of decades. It's incredibly effective, yeah. like, yeah. and possibly bolder and more direct than you've seen people like things uh, done by people like Beyonce. Um, but you met her. Yeah. And it, she was intimidating. Like she had that, that the, her stooges were all around her. She, her stooges were part musicians and part bouncers and they mm. had, you know, earpieces and everybody. It was a classic case of if you want to be a star, you have to behave like a star from the start. I mean, Freddie Mercury used to get people to open doors for him when he was a student. <laughs> <laughs> because once you set that up as being your expectation, everybody kind of like follows in your wake. You know? um, and I had to go and interview her, but she chose to do the interview at the David Bowie exhibition at the V&A. So again, I'm going to be allying myself with one of the greatest yeah. shape-shifting characters yeah. in pop music. When she, was this? This was 2000 and gosh, like 13, 13 maybe or something. Or something. Yeah. And from the start, she went straight in at the top and her mentors were all the biggest men in pop. They right. were Stevie Wonder, Prince, and then she was getting these comparisons to Bowie that actually the journalists made. Right. And then she reacted to the journalists' comparisons. Okay. It was really interesting. So we had to go around this Bowie exhibition. He was still alive. And we were looking at Gilbert and George's piles of oranges 
with, of course, audio headsets on. So how come I, how can I interview her when she's got headset on? It was really annoying. I was having to look at her face and try and work out by the line of her eyes what bit of text she was reading and make some assumption about her from that. Um, and I kind of followed around all afternoon. And eventually we got back into this kind of people carrier with all her stooges. And as soon as she started talking to me, they brought their film cameras out and they filmed my interview became their property. It was incredible mm. to watch. Everything that I was doing for the purposes of the article, they had on tape recorded and they could do what they wanted with it before I could. And then I got her in a hotel room for like 10 minutes and it was like talking to Prince or something. It was just, she talked about being a, an alien and time traveling and all that kind of thing. And um, it was just brilliant. And underneath that, I could feel that there was a quite nervous young person who was trying to figure out how to be famous, how to be tough and how to act and, and not fall into uh, the category of new favorite female pop star who's going to be pitted against Rita Ora or something mm, like that. So yeah. she kind of kept herself very quite masculine and quite separate from the whole kind of arena of female pop stars that were big at that time. So that's interesting that, um, as you say, she kind of allied herself to male figures in a way. Yeah. And, and I think it was... Um, I think it was out. I think it was Big Boy of Outcast who was one of her sort of mentors in the in the early days. Yeah, and then obviously Prince. Exactly. So she um, had Outcast already yeah. making her music with yeah. her. Yeah, and then she had the the advice. She sent her first album to Prince and Stevie Wonder with a handwritten handwritten sleeve notes on it. You know, so she kind of she knew where she was where she was going. And what's the, what's the thinking behind? Because she she started her she already she started her career from the very beginning with this bizarre Cindy Mayweather. A narrative about a sort of Blade Runner mixed with Metropolis narrative about some android who falls in love with a human and then there's bounty hunters sent to like shut her down. And this is like, this isn't just like a little two minute skit at the beginning of a record. Like she's she's properly tried to work this through her first like two records. It's all, yeah. it's all three records. If maybe. you think about it, she, she came out around that period 20, 2006, 2007 or yeah. whatever, in the era of female alter egos in pop. So right. she was totally... Um, Sasha Fierce and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and maybe they were sort of slightly later, but it was it was reflecting something that was going on. Yeah. But what, seem, what she seems to do is she reflects what's going on and she does it in more depth, with mm. more energy and more obsessive mm. detail than other people are doing it. So Cindy Mayweather was... I mean, I used to kind of understand that story and now I haven't got a clue what it's about because <laughs> it's so long ago. But yeah, there was that sense of... Um, if you if you're gonna do something, do it properly. <laughs> that seems to be what she's all about, which is why now she can be political, because mm. she can be more political than Beyonce because she's actually she was always I don't know. I just feel like there was a, there was an undercurrent. There was something that she wanted to do along the the idea of of you know race politics, and she wasn't maybe necessarily able to do when she started out. And now she's kind of she's actually quite outspoken and quite overt about that stuff. I mean, is she a megastar? Like, no. what, what's the what's her level? What sort of level are we talking about? Like, who would you compare her to? I I was thinking I, she's almost like a Solange type right. character because she's made interesting, complicated music mm. in an era that values that, mm. but it doesn't necessarily turn up in the charts. Mm. And I think it does more now. But Solange, it knew the right people, obviously. Did her this is Beyonce's sister? Beyonce's right? sister yeah. did her interesting stuff and is now considered really like highly respected as a musician and sort of mega starish but not not really a pop star i don't really feel like janelle is a pop star so she's actually kind of landed on her feet at one point it looked like she might be 
I don't know, moving into acting. You've seen her in... Oh, yeah. She's in she's in Moonlight. She's amazing in Moonlight. And she was also in Hidden Figures in the same year, which I, which I didn't see. But, you know, she's a, she's a gifted actor. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing that I noticed um, early in her early days was that often her songs were very, very difficult to sing. So if you did see her live, she wasn't... Her voice wasn't necessarily able to accommodate them in the way it was because they're record. sort of studio built, you know, assembled in that kind of yeah. Prince Outcast. And they're yeah. difficult. And yeah. she was—I saw her in Jules Holland, and she really screwed up tightrope because she couldn't hit the notes, and she ran off. She got upset, mm. and she ran off in the recording, and she had to be coaxed back on. And now the songs she's singing are much simpler for her voice. Yes. So maybe some somebody said like, dial it down, and then you can, you know. You can't you can't do this stuff live in the in, you know I mean she was good live but she yeah it did sometimes have a sense of slight chaos about it. I do get the feeling that even though these songs she's produced this year, there's nothing quite as like immediately gobsmacking as Tightrope. No, you think you do feel like the sort of clarity of the message, the stripping down, the fact that they are about empowerment, they're about young black women, they're kind of chime with Me Too and and all of that mm-hmm. stuff you feel like it might be her sort of moment to move move up a notch or two. Mm, mm. It's almost like um, any, I suppose, any very successful star that they, they attach themselves to all the trends around them mm. and then they are still unique at the same time. It's a strange balance. Yeah. At the moment, she, she is doing what people want of female pop stars. It's all about freaks and geeks and, you know, sexual liberation yes. and bisexuality yeah. and stuff like that. And it's not about, um, you know, Cindy Mayweather anymore. No, there was a nice detail in the New York Times interview, which uh, which came out just yesterday, um, that because she has this uh, Paisley Park style complex in, in Atlanta now, Wonderland, which you, which you mentioned, which is quite big now, I think. Is it big? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly described, it was sort of described as a kind of strange, semi-opulent place, uh, sort of, Black Arts Centre in Atlanta, but Black Panther was shooting nearby. So the cast of Black Panther would come back to Janelle <laughs> Monet's Wonderland Brilliant. and like hang out and listen to the record in progress and 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 dance and Chadwick Boseman played the drums and um and she said in interviews that this playing the music to the cast of Black Panther was the thing that sort of gave her the confidence to to finish the record. So this is insane. <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I think she is actually an alien that had yeah. a master plan all yeah, along. Because yes, I'm yeah. thinking, though, she's like changing with the times and stuff. But the fact that she she established this this place that now Black Panther, yeah, <laughs> the I know. cast of yeah. Black Panther are performing yeah. in. Yeah. yeah, maybe she is a, a, a cyborg. I don't know. Come to save us all. Yeah. Uh, Dirty Computer is out on April 27th. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. 
Also, smallwigs who are on the path to becoming bigwigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The New Yorker writer Lawrence Wright wrote a book that was published in 2006 called Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. And he'd been pitched over the years by various people to to turn this into um, a film or a series. Anyway, eventually, earlier this year, the fruits of that um, came to light, a series produced by Amazon and Hulu, (laughs) which we... We, uh, we are all now aware, aware of since The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Apparently, he only sent it to Hulu um, <laughs> out of uh, courtesy. He was like pitching it to Netflix and HBO and stuff. Wow. And he thought, well, I better send it to Hulu <laughs> uh, just, just for the hell of it. And they like offered him insane amounts of money, total creative freedom, you know. Um, so he went, he went with them. And you can get it on, obviously, on Amazon, on Prime. Amazon Prime. So if you, if you want to get your books and toiletries delivered the next day then you might as well sign up for that and then you get this as well and you can watch looming tower while enjoying your toiletries toiletries. (laughs) i've been watching it on your account this is the yeah don't reveal that so i realized that i could order things but they would go to you so it doesn't really make sense i could buy things on your card you, you can also look at my purchasing history which at the moment is mainly Paw Patrol um, pencil cases and Moana cereal and, bowls. And um, wasn't there also like animal costumes for children? I don't think I so. haven't looked at it. I haven't looked at your search history. <laughs> Sounds like you have. <laughs> I thought you were getting recommendations for animal costumes. Oh, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did get some but recommendations. You haven't any. I think that was um, I think that was around World Book Day uh, when I was looking up costumes for my kids. In the end, I actually made a costume. I, I have you know what did yeah, you make? A Cat in the Hat costume. Oh. Um, well, we assembled the costume and I made the hat, but, um, because I'd looked for it, then I was, I was hammered with, um, 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 cartoon character and book, book character costumes for the next few days. Back to the Looming Tower. Mm-hmm. Um, so it concluded um, last so night. So it concluded last night. The show focuses on, uh, the, the, I guess the focal point in a way is the tension between the FBI and the CIA, the CIA playing the kind of long game of trying to get to the to the head of al-Qaeda, trying to track down bin Laden, and the FBI much more concerned with sort of finding the bad guys and, and um, preventing any attacks. The CIA gets sort of higher level information and just refuses to share it. Um, because they feel that FBI people are basically going to explode all their um, careful work and yeah. destroy things. They just arrest can, people is just what they arrest say. people. <laughs> the CIA just want to go in and get bin Laden. And the FBI are more concerned with, you know, 
smaller terrorist attacks here and there and just stopping them. So it's yeah, it's two different strategies. You've got, I guess, two of the three main. You, you've got uh, two of the three main characters are um, Martin Schmidt, the CIA analyst, played by Peter Sarsgaard. Wonderfully creepy. Incredibly creepy, bearded, sort of monkish uh, man with a cabal of young women working for yeah, him. Yeah, who says things like, "If they're not Americans, I really don't care. Doesn't care who dies." If they're not American, and he's sort of set up in um, opposition with uh, Jeff Daniels, who plays uh, the FBI special agent John O'Neill. This isn't a war about one man. His people actually believe. I have to say that I agree with John on this one. You are making a mistake, sir. There's simply too much risk. Someday this administration will be remembered for the risks it didn't take. The tide is high, it's sink or swim. My only rival is within. Bin Laden has made these threats before, but this time he put a time cap on it, saying that whatever violence awaits will occur within the next few weeks. What I need you for is to figure out what happens next so we can stop it. So the central character, I guess, is John O'Neill. Kate, did you find him a sort of compelling, convincing character? He was very um, dramatically a kind of proper lovable rogue, yeah. priapic guy who's got two mistresses on the go at the same time as his family and drinks a lot of scotch and communicates to his male colleagues by either saying, suck me or fuck you. And that's basically what he, uh, the language that he deals in. There's this great dramatic irony hanging over him, isn't there? Because, I mean, this is sort of a spoiler, but given that this is a true story, we're going to roll with it. But, you know, the point that the... The point that the whole narrative leads up to is obviously the fall of the Twin Towers. But once John O'Neill has been kicked out of the FBI, what job does he get? Security, head of security at the World Trade Center. So he's there when it happens. And he's in the North Tower, I think. Yeah. And if you even just Google John O'Neill's name, who murdered John O'Neill? Like this is the truth as all over this. Because of course, isn't it convenient that he gets his oh, job as sake. head of security at the World Trade Center just two weeks uh, before the before the event? And he's heard on his phone out of danger, according to lots of different people. And then he was last seen apparently on floor forty-eight, right. helping people with the evacuation. And then his body was found ten days later in the rubble, something like that. So it's very it's really tragic because you've been following him for, yeah. I think, best part of 10 hours. And I didn't know this story about him. I didn't know. I didn't really know who he was. And I just felt that it was one of the strengths of this of the show was that it was how kind of strangely tight it was kept on the, the lives of the main characters who yes. involved in the investigation yeah. and their emotional reactions, particularly to 9-11. The whole of the last episode was basically four men in different kinds of shock. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you see um, uh, Bill Camp as, as Robert Chesney, um, as another one of those zombified uh, figures covered in white dust that we all grew up with, walking away from the scene of the of the attack, mm. it just, I don't know, I, just, I, I thought there was so much humanity in the way that it actually looked at their reactions. He's a lovely character and he sort of, he he kind of, um, bleeds humanity, doesn't he? He's got this wonderful hangdog expression. He's he's a quite senior FBI guy, um, and um, quite early. On, I mean, one of one of the good things about this this show is that um, even if you know quite a bit about nine eleven, particularly if you're a bit younger, you might not know too much about the uh, USS Cole bombing in Yemen 
or the attack on the um, U.S. embassy in Nairobi, both mm. of which were kind of huge, huge events. The embassy attack came on a, a coordinated day where they attacked multiple em- embassies, and I think more than 200 people were killed. The Chesney, Robert Chesney goes in to sort of sort this out. And as with 9-11, he's left kind of really, really scarred by it. The other brilliant character we should mention, and, and I noticed that the um, the real guy uh, is a producer on the show, so he's obviously quite involved, is Ali Soufan, who's played by Tahir Rahim, who, if any of you, if anyone's seen uh, A Prophet about 10 years ago, brilliant um, French film. He, he was, he was French-Algerian, isn't French he? French-Algerian, yeah. So he's an Arabic speaker in this and he's... one of only eight in the fbi <laughs> amazing that, there's there's many things which date this which which make you realize how much uh america has changed since 9 11 and the other is i would well i'd like to know how many arabic speakers there are in the fbi now but it's certainly more than eight yeah one of the things that really showed me how much times have changed is that on one of the test <clears throat> sort of journeys that the hijackers do Mohammed atta just walks up to the cockpit and briefly opens the door oh yeah and then waves to the pilot waves at the pilots Whoops, and then he says, says like oh i thought it was the bathroom thought it was the bathroom sorry and that is incredible i mean i'm not sure that they did have those little kind of concertina doors but you could you could definitely get in which is just incredible now um yeah robert chesney was about to just talking about the humanity of those yeah characters he was about to retire so at John O'Neill's retirement party with the twin towers strategically in the background on a boat I think out in the in the river Chesney says that you know what happened in Nairobi really shook me I need to get out this is it for me and of course the irony of then (laughs) he's right in the middle of things when twin towers go down and then he's walking up with his covered Mm. in his dust stuff but I I thought it was it reminded me in parts of that brilliant um Paul Greengrass film United 93 in its handling of the actual attack mm. because it, there was something quiet about it. Mm. There is no recreated explosions. There is no sign of, there's no visual evidence of the death of John O'Neill, who you've been following for all this time. And there's no president. Like Bush doesn't appear in this. He yeah, appears as himself. The highest you get is, is Condoleezza Rice, isn't it? Yeah. There's an actor playing Condoleezza Rice, but um, it's actually very smart the way they weave in little, selectively little bits of real footage. It's, it's very, very well done that. I think the only thing which is a slight misstep, which um, Rachel Cook uh, mentioned in her uh, review of the, of the show for us early on in the series, um, is that they do struggle a little bit with the kind of peripheral characters, especially the female characters. <laughs> This is a bit like we had the same problem with Mindhunter, that the female characters are either seen pouring wine or having sex or maybe doing up a shoe. And do you remember McMafia as well? Do you remember the girlfriend in McMafia who's just like takes everything on trust and is just like, oh, is something wrong? Yeah, it's weird. Like um, uh, Chesney goes to, he walks to um, uh, John O'Neill's girlfriend's house and she has lost him that day and she obviously understands on some level that he's dead because he's left a um, a voicemail for her that's quite ominous but she still is able to like wipe the dust off his hands she sponges it she sponges his knuckles with it which is and then he just goes and washes his face normally after yes she sponges him gives him a new shirt hugs him and and there's sort of slight slight suggestion of a kind of like grief eroticism in it and then he says i haven't been able to get hold of john all day and she just smiles and goes over and presses this button on the answer phone. And it's like, I can't see the reality of that, you know, that reaction. She's a weird, like, Catholic saint figure, isn't she? Yeah. She's really, she, I mean, she is, she, she, the church plays a little bit of a, a role in that. Uh, they try and set up John O'Neill's um, faith against um, 
Ali Sufan, um, who is a Muslim, you know, he's not just an Arabic speaker, he's, he's a Muslim. And he, he, there's, a, there's a really um, uh, quite strong interrogation scene in the, last, in the last episode in which he kind of brings to bear his knowledge of the Quran on this uh, Al-Qaeda guy who, yeah. who doesn't have a clue. in a very long extended scene yeah. in Arabic, yeah. which is great. Yeah. It's just like 15 minutes shouting yeah. in Arabic with subtitles. I do think that um, the directors understood that the, the actual visuals from 9-11 are stronger than any yes. film footage ever made. And so there is a, a sort of very subtle sense of like, or literally the only way that you know it's happened is you hear a sound and then one of the little video screens that John O'Neill's watching in his security office goes black. Yeah. And you, they just don't try and do anything else with it at all. So The Looming Tower, all 10 episodes are up there now. It's on Amazon Prime. Last weekend, I sat down with Jim Crace at the Cambridge Literary Festival to talk about The Melody, which is uh, Jim's 14th book. And it carries several of his trademarks, uh, a setting that's nearly true but wholly invented, a community caught in a moment of transition, a crafted rhythmic prose, and uh, a real sort of profound moral purpose. There's also a scheming property developer, a tabloid hack who writes with his flies open, a forest full of creatures that may or may not include Neanderthals, demons, and slug bunnies. And at the center of the story is a character called Alfred Boosie, who's an aging chanson singer who suffers a shocking attack one night in his seafront villa. This book is about lots of things, but it's kind of, it's mainly about poverty and Jim talked a bit about how it was uh, the idea for it came when he was staying in a very very posh hotel at a literary festival in Chennai in India and there was every possible luxury in this hotel and yet they couldn't sleep at night because of the noise outside and when they got up to look at what the noise outside was it was the hotel bins being raided by a combination of animals and humans so that's the seed that sparked the novel. And I'm going to uh, play you a, a clip now that starts with me asking Jim about poverty and, and inequality and um, how he feels things have progressed or indeed not. Uh, a couple of books I looked into while mm. I was looking at poverty was, was Mayhew's London. And there was also um, a book by Jack London who came to London. And I forget the title of the book, but wrote about poverty in London in uh, in the end of the 19th century. And uh, in detail, it's, in fact, it's just occurring to me now, in detail, it's not very different, is it? Mm. I mean, maybe that what happens is that, that poverty robs you of all modern accoutrements as well. So that kind of puts you back into the 19th century. But, but I don't want to pretend that I'm thinking these things out like a structured um, piece of nonfiction. I'm not. The thing about fiction is that because it's so ancient, and because we've been telling stories to each other ever since there was fires, because you cannot imagine that people would sit around a, a fire, you know, in, in, in primitive people would sit around a fire thousands of years ago, where we're sitting now in, in, in ancient Cambridge, with the heat uh, of the fire on their faces and the cold of the night on their backs, and wouldn't be talking to each other about the day that they'd spent and turning into stories and turning into anecdotes. So fiction is very, very ancient, and, and in all of those thousands of years, it's learned lots of things and it's learned mm. lots of tricks. And it's not to say that when you write a novel, you abandon yourself entirely to what fiction knows and take the promptings of the novel itself, but you must to to some extent. So I feel that um, because my novels aren't set in a real world, you know, like I don't hold my mirror up to a real England or a real India or a real Malta, 
because it's my novels are largely works of the imagination, I rely more on what fiction itself can treat, teach me than what I bring to the book myself. You know, this is not a leaflet. Mm. So um, when I started writing the melody, I had those promptings that you describe that I described to you, but I also had lots of other promptings I haven't mentioned mm. that for some reason or other haven't shown up in the book. So, so it's not me completely in control saying these are the ingredients, they've got to go in. It's not a ratatouille unless there mm. are aubergines in it. It's, um, it's what ends up is what happens. And in a way, I, I, I haven't written this book, I'm as baffled by it as everybody else <laughs> um, because it, it's its own thing. Mm. Of course, you have to be careful when you let novels become their own things that you don't let them become racist or homophobic or sexist or, or those kind of things. But a novel never tries to be those things. It, it's always liberal-hearted. Fiction is always liberal-hearted. So if you abandon yourself to it, you end up with something which interests you because you can't predict where it's going. And I think, that, you know, I, I'm going to have to read what the academics say about this novel before I can answer your question. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by, um, I'm interested in fiction is always liberal-hearted. What, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that the very act of writing is a, is a liberal instinct? Well, I was just saying this, this um, just earlier this evening to Malcolm is in the audience somewhere. Um, uh, we were talking. And um, if you look, and this is really naive, and I'm sure you can shoot holes in it, but if you look at the really right-wing writers that we got, for example, in England, the nasty piece of work, Philip Larkin, horrible fascist um, uh, Wodehouse, um, snobbish horror, um, uh, Auburn, uh, not the other war, Evening War. You think about what they were like as human beings and what their beliefs were, but look at their novels and their poetry, and they're much more progressive and have great sensibilities. I mean, you would not imagine from reading Larkin without knowing his background, his attitude towards women and towards black people, you will not imagine that he had those attitudes because there's so much sensibility in every single last word of all of his poems. And then you read the, um, the, the War Trilogy by Evelyn War, and there's great feeling and sodality in those books but you, that you don't find in his life. And uh, the same with Wodehouse. I mean, there's a weird way about Wodehouse that his Jeeves books are kind of anti-class as well as being pro-class because they, they, they melt the division between the classes as well as reinforcing them. And so that's interesting. And what mm. that tells me is that there's something about literature and fiction itself that favours the underdog because that's where the stories are, that, um, that, that has its heart in the right place. I mean, you try and think about a reverse version of something like um, Cry the Beloved Country, you know, the, that great anti-apartheid book. It doesn't work. It can't work as a book unless it's liberal-hearted. And so I know there's going to be some um, examples of writers that, that are bastards in real life and bastards in print. <laughs> um, but I can't for the life of me think of one. So that's what I mean. I think there's mm. something about in, innate in literature which is progressive and and uh, big-hearted. You, um, there's, a, there's an afterword that you wrote to your novel Quarantine where you, you describe how the imp of storytelling uh, sort of disrupted your plan for the book. Yeah. And I was wondering, um, are there other books of yours where the imp has played a sort of particularly important role? Or are there books that have proved imp-proof and have just let you get along with your plan? From no, the, in, in, the thing about fiction, I said that fiction knows a few things. Mm. 
And uh, narrative by its nature knows a few things. It's wise and it's experienced, but it's also very playful and impish. Mm. And um, you might come along with all sorts of solemn ideas of what you want to do in a book. And, uh, and, and you will be resisted very often by the book. And, uh, some, and you have to think about it, but very often you are persuaded that the book knows better than you do and you, and you follow the book's ideas. So I, no, I can't think of a single book um, that I've written uh, in which the imp has not played a part, except for the book that failed. Right. And the reason yeah. that it failed was because it was, a semi, it was an autobiographical novel in a way and there was no place for the imp because the truth was the truth. Mm. And um, it was a terrible book because <laughs> there was no impishness in it. Were there things in the writing of this book that surprised you? Um, well, this is quite a baggy book. Um, and I was surprised that so many, I was surprised that it was so misshapen, or maybe not misshapen, um, um, that it's such a busy book. Mm. Because, because I'm, um, I, I rely, uh, I don't know what I'm going to write until I'm sitting down and, and, and at the desk and I'm waiting to be surprised by the book itself. That's kind of scary. You know, you're not going in with a template and saying, today I'm going to do this. You're going in with nothing except the paragraph you finished yesterday. Mm. And you've got to move forward. And you're listening for the, the imp of storytelling mm. to urge you forward. Um, but, uh, and, and the result of that is that my books turn out to be very schematic because I'm looking for structure all the time, because there isn't any. Right. <laughs> and so I'm like a drowning man grabbing onto en anything that's solid. Whereas this book, I don't seem to have grabbed onto so, so many solidities. There's a lot of, there are so many subjects in this book. It's a much less um, formal, schematic, tidy book than any I've written before. Mm. Good reason not to buy it. No, very good reason to buy it. I um, at one point, one of the characters talks about taking a flaneur's route around the town and, yeah and that for me was something of the of the shape of the yeah shape of the book yeah um um you should write an essay <laughs> <laughs> i will so we often seem to talk on this podcast about suitable music for editing um and what allows you to concentrate and what doesn't and we both agreed that clanad is is very effective because uh, it's so sort of spiritual and calming and, and you can't necessarily work out the elvish words that are going on and one of tom's favorite clanad songs is called robin the hooded man which led me to realize that it is uh next week 34 years ago that Robin of Sherwood, the TV series, hit the screens. So this was very important for you, Tom. It was very important. 28th of April, 1984, this started, although I must have watched it uh, a bit later than that on, on VHS. Yeah, Robin the Hooded Man, the unmistakable uh, um, haunting sounds of Clannad that opened this show. So this is, um, this is like quite a uh, gritty... Um, gritty but quite mystical telling of the of the Robin Hood story. There's lots of stuff about Herm the Hunter, the sort of uh, antler-headed sort of spirit of the forest. And there's also lots of kind of red-blooded stuff about um, resisting the uh, the Norman yoke, the Norman invaders. You know, the the good Anglo-Saxon um, uh, man fight standing up for for his fellow men. Why do you think it got to you so much when you were a kid? Well, of course, I was um, very knowledgeable about twelfth uh, century England at that time. You know, probably about eight or nine. Um, no, I don't know. I think it was um, 
we used to love the baddie, Guy of Gisborne. It's yeah. such a great name, isn't it? Guy of Gisborne. <laughs> uh, this guy called Robert Addy played him. He's a blonde. He's supposed to be a real, like, he's supposed to be the Sheriff of Nottingham sort of brawn. But I guess just no one was that beefy in the No 80s, one was that beefy. <laughs> the idea of brawn in the 80s yeah. is very different. It's like, I watched it a bit, little bit of it again. He's sort of this blonde, slightly foppish guy <laughs> sitting on a horse. But do you know what? I, what I, um, it's one of those things where I thought I didn't remember much about this, but then I watched the opening of the first scene on YouTube last night and I knew it word for word. So you it's, watched it over and over back in the day? I must have done. Yeah, we must have done. So there, there's a great, you know, there's the first confrontation between Robin and Guy of Gisborne. Guy of Gisborne. And who are you, surf? I'm not a surf. I'm a free man. I say you're a surf. You're a surf. Now, what's your name, surf? <laughs> I remembered that word for word. It's brilliant. It might have been your first hearing of the word surf. Yeah. Maybe you were just like, what is this strange word? So would you recommend me to watch it on YouTube if it's there? I think so. Like I I I wasn't sure I wasn't sure how it would stand up, although after we talked about it uh, briefly about Clannard on the a few podcasts ago, a couple of people got in touch to say, you know, it's amazing I've been rewatching it, including Caroline Crampton, who edits this podcast, who uh, who who was recommending me to, to rebuy it on DVD. Um, <laughs> but um, it's one of those shows where um, when you look up all the actors who are in it, they're like, best known for Robin of Sherwood. Yes. Best known for Robin of Sherwood. I, so, it, apart from Ray Winston. And uh, who does Ray Winston play? Ray Winston plays Will Scarlet, one of the, one of the, who becomes one of the Merry Men. Wow. Um, but everyone else so is kind of, this out. was their sort of... This was I their. think my equivalent growing up was the BBC Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Mm which just it sort of resonates on that deep stomach level of something yeah. that I probably would feel very confused if I watched it now because yeah. it would take me back to being eight years old. But, yeah, there's a beauty in those, um, I think, probably in retrospect, very low budget, very ordinary English kind of – was it made in England? Was It It was, yeah. It was yeah. shot in, around the north of England. I in think. the rain. Yeah, kind of and, thing. you know, it starts, with, it starts with a scene of sort of raping and pillaging of a village, but it's the kind of thing where – it's quite effective actually because the soundtrack you just hear fire crackling and there's screaming but there's just a few like mm. now the sound that soundtrack would be right in your face yeah. there'd be like they'd have overdubbed thousands of screaming people on shouting and and it's actually quite as you say it's quite quiet and um and understated probably just because that's all they could they couldn't afford a thousand extras but yeah either either look it up on youtube or um or get yourself the dvd at robin of sherwood Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. Do go onto iTunes and rate us or get in touch with us on Twitter or, you know, email your parents about us, whatever you can. Spread the word. We've been edited by Caroline Crampton and we're going to play you out. With our song of choice, week after week, a wonderful tune called Godspeed by Japanese musical troupe Pistol Jazz. <laughs>